say that at Village, the Bible is central to everything that we do. The Bible is God's primary way of speaking to his people, and so therefore it shapes everything we believe and everything that we do. The Bible is God's word, his gift to us, the church. And so because of this, after I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will all respond together, thanks be to God. Um, If you don't own a Bible and you would like one, there's ones at the back of the church, um, please feel free to take that home with you if you don't have one at home. So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from James um, chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 11. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has, has corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in your last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. And this can be a bit squeaky up here, and I noticed when Travis was up here squeaking. But oh, uh, it'll be right. Um, uh, good to be with you guys. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Andrew is meant to be back uh, this Sunday, but um, if you don't know, he's demolished his ankle uh, in a cycle uh, accident, and he's, uh, he's, he's back home, so he's in, he's in the hospital waiting to get surgery, and they did surgery, and it went well, um, and he's just in a lot of pain. So pray for him, pray for his pain, pray for Haley and the kids, and uh, what a way to like end his, his sabbatical, but um, uh, his... His spirits are high, like, um, it's just encouraging to see him continue to lean, lean into the Lord, even though things uh, aren't going the way he thought they would, so um, keep your prayers with him, though. Um, cool. Uh, we're nearly finished with James, so um, we're going to finish those first 11 verses of chapter 5, and then next week, probably, I'm guessing Alan will probably be over to, uh, to finish chapter 5, so um, we'll get there. 
Um, you can prepare yourself for a stern warning this morning, but also for a, a really lovely word of encouragement. So if you are uh, a visitor, uh, I'm going to trust that the Lord's like put you here uh, for this time and, and uh, that this maybe warning is for you. So um, let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll dig in. We have a lot of Bible to get through this morning. So um, Father, we, we do love you. We thank you so much for your love for us, um, your love that, that we don't deserve. We don't deserve your grace and your mercy, um, but you're so good to us. Um, uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would, um, that you would uh, be at work this morning. Um, uh, I am not eloquent enough. I don't have the, the power uh, to, to open people's hearts up, to transform hearts and minds, uh, to bring people from death to life. That's, that's your job. Uh, so we, we put that in your hands. Um, and give us hearts to hear, Lord, this morning. Um, we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Um, really, I mean, the passage divides nicely into those two sections. We're going to spend a good bit of time on part one, which is verses one to six. James gives that very, very stern warning uh, of judgment for the rich. Um, and then in verses 7 to 11, he, he just turns and he addresses a, another group, um, and he gives this, this encouragement and this exhortation for patience uh, for the oppressed. So um, if you were here last week, you'll remember Nathan uh, covered uh, the end of chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, where James was essentially rebuking those who, who were planning out their lives as if God didn't exist. They, they were planning out their lives as if, as if they themselves were the writer of their own story, um, he, he essentially called them to, to recognize their place in this universe, that you, your life is a mist, that you are here one day, gone the next, uh, that, that all of life is, is grace of God. Um, so instead, we should, should seek the Lord's will in all that we do, not our own. Um, uh, some commentators think that James is writing to that same audience here at the, uh, in, in chapter 5. Um, most scholars, they were convinced that he's speaking to a new group in these first six verses of chapter five. Um, and I, I agree with that. And I think it's, it's, it's obvious that he's speaking to a new group here by the way he speaks to them and his tone. So uh, you, last week, he was speaking to Christian merchants. And, and the, so they're believers there. And he's, he's, you could tell by the way he's speaking to them. He's, it's this kind of back and forth style. He's asking questions and he wants them to, to, to answer those questions. He's, he's, he's exhorting them to, to come and live life that, um, in the reality of, of your relationship with the Lord. But, but here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, there's really none of that. His tone completely changes. His style completely changes. He's, he's no longer addressing these, these wayward believers. He now turns and he's addressing the wicked rich, the, the unrighteous rich who are oppressing the poor. And his tone and his style, it's actually really similar to, to Old Testament prophets who pronounce judgment and doom on pagan nations. There's there's really no hint of exhortation in the first six verses. It's this pronouncement of judgment uh, 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 on the riches, on the unrighteous, wicked rich. Um, he's, he's addressing uh, the rich. You see that in verse 1. He said, come now, you rich. We know they're, they're wealthy landowners. You get that in verse 4. Um, as always, though, it's important to, to, to recognize who he's not addressing here. Um, James in this section, he's not addressing all wealthy people. Um, 
And we know that to be uh, for a couple reasons. Firstly, because of what he's con- con- uh, condemning them for. He's not condemning them for their wealth. He's condemning them for the, the misuse of their wealth. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But it's important to... We, we don't want to apply this text to all wealthy people. Um, firstly, because that would be bad news for all of you in this room. Because as you know... All of us, uh, compared to the average person living on this planet, we are, you are all incredibly wealthy. You are cr- incredibly rich. Um, so we, we don't apply this to, to all wealthy people. That's not who he's addressing here. Um, the other reason we know that this, that can't be the case is because you do read about wealthy people in the Bible who are part of God's people. Like in, in, in the Old Testament, there are, there are these, these chosen people of God who are wealthy, yet they're counted as righteous before the Lord. Uh, you, you get in the New Testament, same case, wealthy people who are, who are part of his, his people. Um, in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were wealthy. Uh, Job was wealthy. Solomon, King David, obviously very wealthy. Um, in the New Testament, Barnabas was wealthy. Lydia, Aquila, Priscilla, they were all wealthy. So there, there's these examples of wealthy people who are counted as righteous before the Lord. So, so he's clearly not condemning all rich people. Rather, he's condemning here the wicked, the unrighteous rich for their misuse of, of their, their riches. Um, saying that, though, I, I don't want you to get too comfortable in your chairs. I, I don't want you to, to say... Hey, well, I'm 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 wealthy comparative to the rest of the world, but hey, we're part of the church, so we're all okay. Let's just maybe skip to the next section because this isn't for us. And that kind of attitude is not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of Jesus. That there there should be a, a, a real healthy unease, uh, maybe even a nervousness about accumulating wealth in this world. Um, that th- you, you should pay close attention to, to Paul in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, you, you should pay close attention to Jesus' teaching on wealth. Um, Luke's gospel covers that a lot. In Luke 16, 13, Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters. You're going to love one or, and hate the other. You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. He says, you can't serve both God and money. And because of that, Jesus exhorted his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth eat and the rust destroy and the thieves break in to steal. He says, instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths, don't, uh, uh, moths and rust don't destroy, thieves don't break in. He says, for where your, your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So we see in Jesus' teaching even Nothing more clearly reveals the state of what's in your heart than how you spend your money and how you view earthly possessions. So no matter who you are this morning, no matter how wealthy you are, Jesus, you should feel this seriousness when Jesus says it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. So, so you should take those warnings incredibly seriously. Um, James is essentially presenting another test of genuine faith. You want to know if someone's a genuine believer, look at how they spend their money. Look at how they view their possessions. Um, But again, he's speaking in in the first six verses. He's addressing directly the the unrighteous, the wicked rich, those who are oppressing those around them. But I think he's including this in his his letter to the believers for them to, to kind of listen in on this. 
Uh, he wants them to hear what he's, he's telling them. Uh, I think firstly, in order for them to receive encouragement, possibly for being the ones who are being oppressed by the, by the rich, that was definitely the case in, this, in the early church. But he also wants them to listen in and, and to be warned seriously not to fall into the same sin because you easily can. So let's uh, listen carefully. Um, verse 1, he says, come now. That's how he started the previous section last week in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. This, this listen up, are you, are, you, are you paying attention to me? Um, he uses that phrase to, to introduce a new group. So in chapter 4, verse 13, he, he was introducing us to these fools who presumptuously lived as if God didn't exist. And now in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, he's introducing us to you rich and these, these, un, these, these wealthy, wicked, rich people who are oppressing the poor. They're, they're, they're oppressing the, the Christian community in this specific context. And, and, and uh, the condemnation that he pronounces over them, it's issued with that same tone as the Old Testament prophets. So you start to get a little bit you know, that kind of Old Testament uncomfortableness here. He, he, James shifts and he starts to sound like Ezekiel or Isaiah or Amos. When he tells the, the rich to, to weep and to wail, weep and wail, that, that Old Testament, uh, th- those two words were com- often used in the Old Testament to, to really depict the reaction of the, the rich on the day the Lord comes for, to, to mete out judgment, essentially. This howl, this wail, this crying for despair, um, it, it, only used in the Old Testament uh, prophets to, to refer to judgment. Weep and wail because the Lord is judging you for your wickedness and the way that you oppress those around you. Isaiah, in chapter 13, verse 6, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Um, It's easy to read even those Old Testament pronouncements of judgment and think, Flip, I I thought God was meant to be merciful. It seems like he's maybe being unfair. I thought he was a loving God. Um... You can't really read those in, in that context and, and, and think, oh, God's just being real harsh here. Justice is being carried out. Justice is being carried out in those situations for these wicked rich who are trampling on the poor. So even in our context, we, we want that justice, don't we? Like no one feels bad for that corrupt CEO of that multinational corporation. They're just trampling on the poor in order to gain more riches. No one's like, I feel bad for that guy. No, I want justice to be done there. It's normal for us to, to feel that. And, and that's, that's the tone here, this, this, this tone that he's condemning the wicked rich for abusing and trampling on the poor. And he says, weep and wail. And why are they to weep and wail? It's because the, of the miseries that are coming to them. So with that kind of Old Testament prophet background, that Isaiah 13, 6, and with the rest of the text, I think that shows us that the the miseries that are coming to them, he's not speaking about earthly, temporal sufferings. He's he's talking about this condemnation and the judgment that God will mete out to them on the day of judgment. So they are to, to weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to them. It's not temporary hardship. It's, it's, he's talking about this, this overwhelming trouble that will come to them when they stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. Um, if you're thinking, listen, but that's Old Testament stuff, right? 
That, that's like Jesus is like mercy and, and love and, and just grace, right? Well, Jesus issues this same exact warning in Luke chapter 6, verse 24 to 25. Jesus himself says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So do you see, even for Jesus, he's, it's this promise of this reversal of their fortunes when he comes again. He's saying this, like, this is what you are experiencing now, but this is what's to come for you. He says, you, you are, you've been hoarding up your riches now. You, you are kind of stuffed and satisfied now. You, you are all laughs now, but he says, you've received your comfort in full. There's, no, there's not going to be more comfort for you. You're going to be thirsty. You're going to be hungry. You shall mourn and weep. That's the message of Jesus. And James, his brother, is just redirecting. He's just uh, quoting Jesus, essentially. Again, he's not addressing all wealthy people. He's, it's these condemnations on the wealthy um, for their misuse of their wealth. Um, but again... Don't feel too comfortable in that. Don't think, I'm, I'm fine because I'm part of the church. And scripture warns that wealth is a particularly strong obstacle in your Christian discipleship. We, we should, in a healthy way, be cautious of gaining wealth. Because Jesus says it's hard for a wealthy person to, to enter into heaven. And so we need to remind ourselves regularly of these warnings, don't we? We should feel the danger of living in our, in our Western context where amassing wealth, amassing stuff, it's not only condoned, it's the goal. It, it's celebrated. So we should come to grip with even this passage and, and ask ourselves seriously, when do we have too much? Um, the rest of the, scru- the structure of the, of the paragraph is very clear. Um, James, he's announcing that, announce, uh, that condemnation on the wicked rich and then he really takes a few verses to explain why these rich people are destined for condemnation. And he gives these four reasons for their, their future misery. I think these are on the screen. Four reasons for their future misery. Firstly, in verses 2 and 3, it's because they have selfishly hoarded their wealth. Secondly, in verse 4, it's because they have defrauded their workers. Verse 5, because they follow a self-indulgent lifestyle. And then lastly, in verse 6, is because they oppress the righteous. So we'll just kind of quickly go through those. Um, verse 2 and 3, let's read it again. It's the first reason that James gives for the, the, the wealthy being destined for condemnations because they've selfishly hoarded their wealth. Uh, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. So there's James. He's picking it back up on his, this theme of life is transitory. Life is insubstantial. And he's pointing to the fleetingness of wealth. He's saying you've, you've hoarded up, you've stored up your wealth that will all one day rot away. That, that you, all this, this pile of stuff, this rotting things, that's what you've placed your hope in. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your, your gold and silver have corroded. He sounds like Jesus in Matthew 6, doesn't he? 
That's, that's ex- Jesus, don't store up earth, earthly treasures. Moths eat them. Rust destroys them. Thieves break in and steal. They're temporary. And, and James is saying, what Jesus warned you of doing, that's exactly what these people are guilty of doing. Hoarding up their, uh, their earthly treasures. Um, but simply pointing out the, the transitoriness of, of earthly treasures, it's not his only point in these two verses. He's, he's not simply saying, hey, don't hoard up those earthly treasures because they don't last. He builds on that and he says, um, these, these earthly rotting treasures will actually be evidence against you. That they'll stand as a witness against them. So look at verse 3 again. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Um, so two things, that, that phrase, will eat your flesh like fire, that's, that's a, it's an image of God's judgment. It, he, he's saying that, that this, this hoarding up of those riches on earth, this is what it will bring you. Um, and that phrase, in the last days, he's simply referring to here and now, like, like where we are right now. That anytime the New Testament writers refer to last days, they're talking about the the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So we are in those, those last days, this, this period of anticipation of his final return. So he's saying, you've laid up, you've stored up your treasures here, now, earthly things. They, they've done exactly the opposite of what Jesus calls his disciples to do. Do you see that? And James says that that accumulation, that, that hoarding of that pile of corroding wealth will be the evidence that, that these rich people have stored up their treasures on earth instead of heaven. What Jesus, he's saying, this plainly shows what Jesus says. This is where your heart is. It's, 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 it's bound up by earthly things, not heavenly things. Because, uh, and because of that, what's to come for them is weeping and wailing. Um, now again, is it sinful to have things? Is it sinful to, to have wealth? Uh, no, it's, it's not. Uh, what, what is sinful, what will ultimately provoke judgment, is a misuse of wealth. And the sinful misuse that you see in verse 2 and 3 is they have stored up their wealth in, uh, in, in earthly treasures. Their, their hearts have been captivated and captured by their possessions rather than by God. Their, their wealth, it ceased to be something that that is to be enjoyed by, as a blessing from God. It ceased to be something that, that is meant to be used in order to fulfill His will, in order to bless those around us. It ceased to be something to be used for the advancement of the gospel. Instead, what they've done is they've just stored it all up and will now suffer judgment. Um, look at the second reason for their pending judgment in verse 4. It shows us that they've defrauded their workers. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Um, so that situation of the wealthy mistreating the poor is found all through Scripture. It's really common. Specifically, though, those who defraud their workers. Um, Malachi 3 verse 5 says, I will come near to you in judgment. I will be quick to testify against those who defrauded laborers their wages. 
Um, or Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, really similar to James, actually. He says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So that was still happening in the New Testament in James's context, there was this uh, increasingly concentration of land that was kind of held in the, in the hands of uh, a small group of wealthy landowners. So there's really, there wasn't much of a middle class. There was wealthy landowners, and then there was the poor. Um, and these wealthy landowners, they, they essentially, the, the, the farmers were essentially forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to these rich uh, landowners. Um, in, in Matthew 5, you'll remember Jesus tells this parable about the workers in the vineyard, and, and it's significant in that parable that the workers, they're ex, they expect their pay at the end of the day, um, they're, they're, because they're poor, because they, they, they need to, that, that money to provide their, their daily bread for their family. So, so prompt payment would have been very important for these people, and the failure to pay them could jeopardize life itself. James was, he's pointing out that these wicked, rich people, they, they've made their wealth by defrauding their workers. And in an echo of Deuteronomy 24, James says, the, those wages that you held back are crying out against you. It's, that, it's similar to that, um, like Cain's blood crying out to God for justice. He, he says, those, the, the cries of these workers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, um, which is, should be a a sentence that kind of leaves you shaking in your boots a bit. That the phrase Lord of hosts means this almighty leader of a great army. Like you're meant to shudder at the thought of this powerful, holy one who will judge those who infringe upon his commandments. In verse 5, the third reason James says these rich have miseries coming to them is because they have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Um, he says you've, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. Um, he says you've, you've lived your lives just in the here and now. You, you've, you've, you've spent your riches on yourself. These people are blind to heaven. They, they have no regard for anyone but themselves. And he says you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Um, in the Old Testament, a day of slaughter or the slaughtering of animals was used. It's this vivid description of the day of judgment. And they used that imagery to really to depict the terrifying reality of God's coming judgment. And listen, you're meant to feel uneasy. You're meant to be like, this, this sounds awful. And the prophet Amos graphically depicted the wicked rich of his day who trampled on poor as fatted cattle, that they were ripe for the devastating slaughter of God's judgment. Um, Isaiah does the same in Isaiah 34. James says, you've lived your lives for your own self-indulgence. One commentator wrote, the rich selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and wastefully spending it on their own pleasures in the very day that when God's judgment is eminently threatened. The, the, the last days have already begun, yet uh, the judgment could break in at any time, yet the rich, instead of avoiding that judgment, are, by their selfish indulgence, actually incurring greater guilt. 
They're like cattle being fattened for the kill. So James, he's accused these rich of of hoarding their wealth, of cheating their workers, uh, of living self-indulgently. And now in the climax of his denunciation, he accuses them of of condemning and murdering innocent people. That's verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous person is, is the, the morally upright. They're, they're, James is referring uh, to the typical follower of God here. Um, the, these, are, these are victims of the rich oppressed, uh, oppressors who are innocent of any crime or wrongdoing. They're, they're the opposite of the wicked rich. They are themselves righteous and innocent. And James says the rich in this situation have condemned and murdered them. He could be speaking literally here. Um, I think he's probably thinking, I think he has in mind the, the practical outcome of their actions of, uh, of cheating the poor and, and, and oppressing them. The, the, the practical outcome is that the poor starve to death. He says, the results of your hoarding, cheating, self-indulgent way of life are just devastating for those around them. And he adds that the righteous person does not resist you. Um, I think he's adding further proof that he's speaking of oppressed believers here. Because with that one line, it sounds like they are taking seriously Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek. To, 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 if anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If anyone sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. They're, they're, they're taking seriously Jesus' commands there. It's a strong warning, isn't it? Um, but... Please listen to it. Don't, don't, don't fall into this sin. Um, be weary of that, the chokehold, that subtle chokehold that wealth can put on you. Um, Paul gives this instruction in Timothy 1, uh, verses 6, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 and 17. He essentially gives the the, the right way to live with riches. The, what the, 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 this kind of... Um, contrast of what James is saying. Um, He says, as for the rich in this present day, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provide us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly what what is truly life. So he's not saying don't be rich. He's saying if you if the Lord's blessed you with that, do good, be generous, seek His kingdom, not hoard it up. Um, let's finish then by looking at verses seven to eleven. I'm going to read it one more time. He says, "Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth." being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
So through these first six verses, he's rebuking, he's pronouncing judgment, he's condemning the wicked rich. But then in verse 7, he turns and who does he address? Brothers, sisters. He turns to address the church. He was sharply rebuking the wicked rich for abusing the righteous poor. And then he shifts his focus from the persecutors to the persecuted. He's moving from condemning the faithless to comforting the faithful. And in this section, he encourages them to be faithful in trials. And everyone, listen up at this point. You're not thinking, well, then this is for the poor, so I'm not necessarily poor. This is for every believer because every single believer will suffer. Every single believer will have some sort of hardship and suffering in which we must remain steadfast. So in in that general sense, we live in a fallen world that's riddled with sin. The the basic human experience is death, (laughs) is suffering. Um, But we also see that in the New Testament, there's an extra suffering. There's an extra hardship that's reserved for specifically followers of Jesus. Um, there, there's a rejection that only followers of Jesus will experience because of their faithfulness to him. So all followers of Jesus, pay close attention here. Um, Christians will experience suffering, trials, and here James says, in light of that truth, and in light of the, the, the coming judgment that I've been talking about, he says, here's an attitude that every Christian must adopt. Here's something that that every one of you must adopt. And in verses 7 to 11, he doesn't really leave us any doubt what that basic attitude must be. Um, It's patience. Look how many times he says, be patient, brothers and sisters. Be patient. Have patience. Remain steadfast. Stand firm. Be patient. His main message in verses 7 to 11 is, in light of the fact that, that you are being oppressed and persecuted... In light of the fact that you're experiencing hardships and suffering, and in light of the fact that Christ is coming soon as the the judge and the deliverer, you must be patient. So he says in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says that with, with that therefore, that's a connecting word. James is saying, in light of the fact that the Lord will come again and judge the wicked, Those who have been oppressed and trampled on the poor, be patient. He's saying, you, brothers and sisters, will in some way be the oppressed. You will be the ones who will be trampled on. But, he says, Jesus is coming again. So be patient. And that word coming, it's a very special word to New Testament believers. It's this Greek word, parousia. It literally means presence. His presence is coming. He's talking about his physical presence. It's this it's word that means advent. It's this coming. There's this, we live in this, with this anticipation that Jesus Christ is coming again as our conquering king. New Testament believers actually look forward to the coming of the judge and the deliverer. And James says, be patient until he does come. He issues this call for endurance, for perseverance, for standing firm until Christ comes again. Uh, James wants us to see that 
that anticipated reversal of fortunes. So what Jesus was saying, this, this, Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich. You've received your comfort in full. You've filled your bellies. You laugh. That will be reversed for you. That you're, 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 you, will, you will hunger. You will thirst. You will weep and wail. And James is saying that when the judge and the deliverer comes for those who have been patient, for those who have been faithful and steadfast, there's also a, reverse, a reversal coming. That the faithful, even though they've experienced this hardship and sufferings, there will be a great reward to come. Faithful followers, followers of Jesus, it's this, this patient anticipation that I think was captured when Samwise Gamgee asked Gandalf. Gandalf came back to life and Samwise said, Gandalf, are, are, is everything sad going to come untrue? Captured in that. It's this, this waiting for, for Jesus to come and, and wipe every tear from every eye. To, 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 to comfort those who have been oppressed. To, to, for those who have been trampled to be vindicated. For the oppressed to be set free. James says, be patient then as you endure those hardships. And James gives us some examples to imitate uh, firstly, he says, uh, be patient like the farmer who, is, uh, who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the, and the late rains. Uh, I don't know if anyone grew up on a farm here, and especially a farmer who grows crops. They have, they're hard workers. They have to do a lot, but they have to be patient. There's so much that they can't do. Can't make the rains come. Can't make their crops grow. Just wait. Just wait like a farmer. Be patient, um, establish your hearts, James says. That just means stand firm. That's the exhortation of Hebrews, wasn't it? Stand firm, brothers and sisters, no matter what comes our way. And the reason why we do that is, he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because Jesus is coming again soon. Verse 9, he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, and that brings us back to his, his teaching on the tongue. We've looked at a lot through James. Don't, don't use your tongue to tear each other apart. Use it to build one another up. When does that happen? People don't grumble. They don't tear each other apart when things are going well. It's when things get hard. When things get difficult, we begin to, to complain and grumble against one another. So James says, when that hardship comes, seek unity. Don't, don't give in to grumbling. Seek, seek that heavenly wisdom that only comes down from above, that heavenly wisdom that results in peace, that results in unity and righteousness. Why? Again, he says, it's because the judge is standing at the door. That Jesus is near. Jesus is just outside the door. He's about to turn the handle and come in. So he says, hold on. Seek unity. Build each other up. Be patient with each other because it's nearly over. And then verse 7, he gives another example of suffering, of patience and suffering, of remaining steadfast while under duress. And he points us to the prophets. So we just go back and preach Hebrews 11 again. Go, go listen to that one again. These, these men and women who were faithful to the Lord, who clung on to the Lord, they were steadfast through immense suffering. Isaiah, sawn in two. <laughs> Jeremiah, killed by the sword that Maccabean woman and her seven sons. James says, 
Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And James is essentially quoting his brother Jesus and the Beatitudes. That's Matthew 5, 11 to 12, right? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. <laughs> rejoice and be glad when, when that happens. Why? He says, for your reward is great in heaven. There's a great reversal coming your way. Jesus says, they persecuted the prophets before you. Be patient. Be steadfast. And the last example he gives is Job, uh, which is a really interesting example um, because Job certainly wasn't perfect in this. Um, Job, I kind of think of him as this kind of, he's a bit of an anti-hero when it comes to patience and suffering um, which to me, the fact that he included him in here as, as an example is incredibly encouraging. Um, Job lost everything. He lost it all. And when you read his story, he doesn't just kind of skip and kind of sail through the suffering. That, that's, not, that's not what James is calling for here. That's not what, what, what real perseverance in hardships looks like. Read Job's, Job's story. Job he did complain bitterly at time about God's treatment of him. Jo- Job lamented. Job asked why. But he never abandoned his faith. It's possible to do that and remain clinging on. In the midst of Job's incomprehension, he clung on to God and continued to hope in him. He, he struggled. He questioned. He sometimes even defied but the flame of faith was never extinguished from his heart. I think by using Job, he, James is pointing us to this real gritty example of, of, James, of Job's steadfastness and endurance imperfectly in the face of real gritty suffering. And he says, you've heard, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, right? He wasn't perfect in it. But he continued to fight for his faith. In the end, he clung to the Lord. And James says, if you've heard that story, then you've seen the purpose of the Lord. You've seen what the Lord did bring about in the end. You've seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You need to hear that, church. Your present sufferings, no matter what you're going through, it's not the end of your story. You might just be in the middle of your story. When, like Job, when he was just in the middle of it, he was losing it all. But you need to, to recognize that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He does bring things for our good. You, God will transform your situation for good when Christ returns again in all of his glory. It's going to take waiting it's, it's going to take patience. It's going to take um, endurance. Like I said, you might just be in the middle of your story when things are falling apart, like Job, but have patience until the end. When Christ returns in his glory as our judge and our deliverer, he will transform your situation for good and forever. Why? Because he's compassionate, because he's full of mercy. In the midst of your suffering, whatever that looks like in your life right now, um, James says, be patient. 
because Jesus is coming again soon. Your fortunes will be reversed when he comes in all of his glory. He'll make the sad things come untrue. Be patient, be steadfast, stand firm. And one of the clearest examples of that reversal pattern is found in Psalm 37. I'm just going to end by reading a section of that psalm. I think it's going to be on the screen. Um, Psalm 37, it's it's this beautiful song that is, it's a song of encouragement that's directed to the, to the righteous, um, to, to, the, to those who in the psalm, they're described as poor and needy, those who suffering persecution at the hands of the wicked, James 5 themes here, um, and, and in this psalm, those righteous, those poor and needy, those trampled ones, they're tempted to be envious of the evildoers, to be envious of their prosperity here and now, of their accumulation of their wealth. But in, in, in this situation, just like for James, David encourages them to be patient. Um, I'll read a section of it. Uh, David says, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. He's saying, in the here and now, you might be being trampled on. They might be prospering. He says, fret not because of that. Don't, don't be envious of, of them. And he says, why, in verse 2? For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So, he says in verse 3, instead, trust in the Lord and do good. That's James, isn't it? Trust in him and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Dwell in the land and, and befriend faithfulness. Make faithfulness your, your companion. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Think about that verse. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make the Lord be where your delight is. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. Does that, is that, that, that kind of starts to make sense of, hey, lay your treasures up in heaven. Let, let that be where your heart is. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Make him be where your heart is. Store your treasures up in him. Make him be what you most delight in. And David says, if you do that, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll be able to give you the desires of your heart. That God's saying, if you delight in me, if you, if, if you delight in me, what you find in me never ends. If you delight in my grace, in my mercy, in my love, those things never end. I, I will pour those things out on you for eternity. Isn't that amazing? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Steadfast, be, be faithful, remain patient. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, he says, and he will act. He will act. It's not up to you to, to act. It's not up to you to, to figure it out, to get revenge. That's his job. He will act. You just need to commit your way to him. You just need to, be, you just need to trust him. It says, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light. It's not something you'll do, it's something he will do for you. Your justice as the noonday. 
Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Hard. We're distracted. We're busy. He says, David says, that's the key. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way or the one who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, attends only to evil. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, those who have patience, shall inherit the land. There's this reversal of your fortunes to come. He says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he won't be there. He says, the meek, that the humble shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's stand and pray. And Father, we thank you for your patience. Uh, we're only able to, to, to be faithful one more day, um, to work it out, to fail, to come back to you, uh, because you are patient. Your patience is rooted in your love. Help us to know that, Lord, that you love us, that you delight in us, that you want us to, 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 to be still before you and wait and just to be with you. You're so patient with us, even when we turn away from you for the millionth time. When we get it wrong, um, you're patient, you're good, you're calling us back. Um, make us like you, Father. Um, make us like Jesus, that perfect example uh, of one who, even though he was trampled and oppressed, um, he remained with you. He, he waited for you. He's patient. He didn't give in to grumbling. He didn't give in to complaining. He just clung on to you. Uh, what an example of faithfulness. Uh, we thank you that, that in Christ, you allow us to be faithful. You give us the power. You give us the strength. You give us all we need to, to live in this way. Um, uh, we thank you, Jesus, for, for what you've done for us. I pray these things in, in your name. Amen.